0: Thank you for listening to the Stonehouse Sermon Series, A Disciple's Songbook. This series focuses on the Psalms of Ascent, songs that God's people would sing on their journey up to Jerusalem. So, we've been walking through a series in which we look at Psalms 120 through 134. Those are commonly referred to as the Psalms of Ascent, and they are called that because typically, more than likely, uh, they are sung uh, or recited corporately among a group of people that is pilgriming or journeying on their way uh, to Jerusalem. Let me turn this mic down. So we've seen an entire array of, of kind of emotions and experiences for the psalmist thus far. Uh, we've seen laments, crying out to God, uh, the, the, the difficulty of, of living in a fallen world, uh, the brokenness that, that can be often burdensome for folks, the, the need for help, the reality of joy, the need for mercy. We looked at how God actually redeems our work. We looked at what true blessing is. We looked at perseverance. And today, we come to a psalm that is generally about suffering, but specifically about a certain type of suffering. And so you should know that there have been two primary ways in which this text has actually been interpreted uh, through the course of history, you could say. Um, I'll tell you what those two are. I'll tell you which one I think is accurate and why. Uh, first, the first is that the text has to do with, with general suffering, the hardships of life that anybody as a human being, regardless of who you are, where you were born, will have to face. So, so disease, persecution, natural disaster, strife, emptiness, sorrow, death, right? These are all... General realities that come to the human being. And they are difficult to deal with. Uh, Intense wind sometimes can be a form of suffering. Um, The second is that this psalm specifically has more to do with the psalmist expressing dismay over more of an internal reality. And so, so rather than a general suffering that comes to us externally... The second interpretation would say that as this psalmist is crying out in the first couple of verses, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, he is conveying an internal reality in his heart. That is, that the psalmist is guilty and feels the weight of his guilt and therefore cries out to God. Why do I think that? Um, Well, let's read verses 1 and 2 and then I'll... You. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So we know that that the that the psalmist is struggling. That's that's rather obvious, I think, from, from the first verse. But you would expect the psalmist at the end of verse two to ask for help. If there was a general hardship that the person was facing, you wouldn't really expect him to say, I need mercy. Right? Mercy is more of a word that is given to somebody that has done something wrong that needs some kind of forgiveness. So that that doesn't get us all the way there. I think it gets us at least halfway there. And then if you look at verse 3, he immediately starts talking about iniquity. And in verse 4, eventually moves to forgiveness. So it seems to me that, that to interpret this and to say that it has more to do with general suffering kind of misses the boat, because why else would he say, I'm crying out to you, oh God, it, it hurts, hear my voice, I'm pleading for mercy, and then, if you were to count iniquities, who could stand? With you, there's forgiveness. It seems to convey pretty clearly that it has to do with guilt. I know that is uh, kind of a, a bad five-letter word in our culture. We don't typically like to talk about guilt Um, and it's kind of avoided uh, to an unhealthy extent, really. And there are really two ways to to inappropriately look at guilt, and this passage actually gives us a balance and a need if we're actually going to interpret it rightly and and actually look at what the whole of Scripture has to say about guilt. Um, Before I get any further, let me pray, because I'd be remiss if I didn't, and then uh, we'll dive more fully into the text. Lord you're worthy, you're good, you're kind, you are forbearing, you are almighty, you are long-suffering with folks like us, and we come this morning to ask for your help, though you are perched above and outside the universe and beyond all things, uh, we ask, Lord, that you would stoop down to the lowliness of human beings, and that you would interact with us, that you would empower your word to speak to us in genuine and transforming ways. Lord, I pray that uh, you would do that through me, and you know better than I do even uh, how incapable I am of doing anything good here this morning apart from your grace. So... I ask for your help. I ask that you would deliver to your people something worth hearing. I ask that your word would do what you've promised that it will do and that it will not return to you empty. And I ask that I would be faithful to that, faithful to the text for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about three things here, hopefully, if I do my job. One is the reality of guilt. Two is the remedy of guilt, and three is the result of the remedy. So I already said that there is, is typically a perception when you talk about the word guilt for people to just kind of, Ugh, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, I, I, that, See, this is the problem I have with, with religion, right? It's just guilt, burden-driven, um, oppressive kind of language, and, um, and it tends to leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And I would say that that is kind of a cultural narrative, and it is an overreaction to guilt. We, we There's an equal and opposite error, which we'll talk about in a moment. But to say that guilt is um, to be avoided at all costs is an overstatement. And hopefully I'll show you that uh, here. C.S. Lewis opens his, uh, his book, Mere Christianity, uh, talking about overhearing people quarreling and and general statements that that you overhear people talking about. He says this, everyone has heard people quarreling. I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat, I was there first. Or leave him alone, he's not doing you any harm. Or why should you shove in first? Or uh, give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. Or come on, you promised. And what C.S. Lewis is doing is he's saying that these general statements reveal something about the nature of reality. And what he does is he basically calls it the universal law of human nature. And that is fundamentally within every human being there is a tendency to kind of assume an ought and an ought not culture or landscape, so to speak. There's, there's sort of this this inherent thing in the human being that says, you should do this and you should not do this. And everybody generally agrees on that, right? These should and should not statements. And so what he's doing is appealing to an objective moral standard that is outside of us. The reason I say that is because when we talk about guilt, it's important that we Establish some kind of standard because if you throw out guilt, you also throw out the standard, right? In our in our attempt to run away from guilt and to, to hyper-flee from it, so to speak, you're also throwing out any kind of objective right and wrong. Uh, this is better than this. You ought do this. You ought not do this. And so in, in a way, it self-defeats. To, to cast aside the reality of guilt in our lives is to also... Do away with this standard of right and wrong. Uh, there's there's a common narrative in our culture that says, "Well, I do believe in morality, but I think it is something that is subjective, and something that I should be able to decide for myself." Right? You don't need to impose your standards upon me. I'm a moral person. I think this is good. I think this is right, and it's possible for me to be moral without all of this guilt talk. And so I would say, in a sense, yes, that's true. There are good, decent people walking around that don't believe in guilt and are not motivated by guilt that live, quote-unquote, decent lives and are nice to their neighbors and so on and so forth. The problem is, is that in theory, it, it sounds nice, but practically, nobody lived this, lives this out. right? So you can say it in theory, but in real life if somebody steals your car, you're not going to say, well, that's just maybe their moral truth, right? You're going to say, justice. I demand justice. I appeal to this higher authority that that person should not have stolen my car, right? Thereby saying there is an objective moral standard that we should adhere to. The reality is, is that sometimes people are guilty of doing things wrong. (laughs) It's just something that we need to come to terms with. If, If you can't say that, if you can't define that, then you have to do away with our judicial system altogether. We we would have to stop imprisoning people. We would have to stop bringing justice to victims. It doesn't hold up when you zoom in on the subjective moral uh, viewpoint. And and kind of out of that has sprung what what might be referred to as the self-esteem movement, um, a really common popular narrative in America right now, in the West in general, is that we need to do everything in our power not to make people feel bad about themselves. Now, I'm not talking around, talking about walking around berating people and making them feel awful. Of course, that should be avoided. But there seems to be a hypersensitivity that says we only must affirm people. and And out of that has sprung this self-esteem movement that says... Uh, low self-esteem equals damage to society, right? These sociopathic people, the real problem is that they don't feel good about themselves and that if we could just get them to feel better about themselves, they wouldn't be a harm to society anymore. A woman by the name of Lauren Slater actually wrote a piece in the New York Times, which you can Google and, and read for free unless you're over your 10 New York Times article per month uh, limit. Um but I was not, so I could read it for free. Um, her name is Lauren Slater. She, she write, writes a piece for the New York Times called uh, The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And in it, she basically outlines the fact that this research that has come out, uh, primarily, I think, starting in the 90s about this low self-esteem and it ruins people and we need to just dole out praise regardless of what they've done and just make them feel okay and, and, and they'll walk through life and be healthy, productive... Wonderful citizens. She says it doesn't really hold up because there's some research um, being done that actually directly contradicts that. There's a guy by the name of uh, Roy Baumeister, who's a social psychologist, who has done a lot of research on this, and uh, he seems to think the opposite is true. There's also a guy uh, by the name of Nicholas Emler, who has kind of worked with him, and here's what he says. The fact is, we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have, and there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. If we lived in a society in which people never felt guilty, you'd, 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 you'd live in utter chaos. I mean... I'd heard that they were actually looking at some kind of medication uh, to help with PTSD uh, so that people could get over the harmful effects of whatever they had walked through that had caused the PTSD. But they were really fearful because the same thing that would soothe the aftermath or the effects of the trauma that they had gone through would also basically suppress the conscience. It would also basically cease from making people feel bad about things that they have done. Um, so point number one is that guilt should not be fleed from in the sense that our culture flees from it. Because it does serve a good purpose when readily understood. Secondly, we, we, we don't want to ignore the equal and opposite error, right? And that is that we as people, well, okay, there are churches in America that are, you could say, maybe hyper-religious, and they make it every aim of their life to make people feel guilty, right? So their whole narrative is you must feel guilty, you must continue to feel guilty, and guilt, guilt, guilt. And we, you know, they beat people over the head with it and and that is on the opposite end of the spectrum and that is also not where we want to go. Scripture does not present either one of those. I find that people often think that, that uh, the Bible and Christianity and the church in general teaches this moralistic guilt, 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 berate people, control them, use guilt as a tool of manipulation. I find that most people that I talk to that are not a part of the church, tend tend to view it that way. But it's important for us to realize that Psalm 130 has a verse 4 in it, and you have to ignore that in order to uh, align with that uh, type of thinking. So hopefully I've established that that guilt is in some regard a good thing, a necessary thing, and when viewed with balance, uh, we need not be afraid of it. Um, At the same time, though, we have a a little bit of a problem because as people, we're not necessarily disposed, uh, predisposed to seeing our guilt very clearly, right? It's, It's a lot easier to shift blame than it is to accept blame. That's just kind of who we are as a result of the fall. It's easy for us to point. It's hard for us to say, guilty is charged, right? And so oftentimes it takes something external to come and confront us to reveal our guilt. couple examples, hopefully, that can maybe help you see this. Anybody ever had a performance review? I'm sure everybody has, right? Well, most people. But, you know, it's interesting because you find that most people, I think, probably do their jobs fairly well, and set out to do them well, and try to do them well, and want to work hard. Uh, But in spite of that, there's something about hearing, I'm going to review you, that conjures up every tiny detail, every mistake you've made over the last six months. Right? Immediately, the, the email you sent that was a slight miscommunication, the I that you forgot to dot, the T that you forgot to cross, is evident in the forefront of your mind. so what happened there? Did you become newly guilty, so to speak? No. The performance review merely revealed the guilt that was already there. Right? Right? And I don't want to make too big a deal of not dotting an I, but the fact of the matter is you did that, and the performance review enabled you to remember it. Right? So you're revealing a condition that's already there. Okay, here's the other one three very powerful words uh, in the form of a question particularly spoken by a spouse or maybe a parent. Can we talk? (laughs) Right? Some of you know immediately if my wife comes up to me and says, can we talk? My heart sinks a little bit, right? Right away, what did I do wrong? You know, I, I wasn't thinking about something that I did. I wasn't thinking about uh, a mistake that I had made, but the moment she says, can we talk, I go to every mistake I made in the last week, and I'm conjuring it up, and I'm like, oh, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. So again, it's not as though I committed uh, some error in in which I'm newly found guilty. It is merely that her question to me is revealing guilt that is already within my heart. And if we look at verse 3, we see The ultimate guilt revealer. That is to say, when we look at God, we see our guilt. So it is easy to function in society and uh, diminish the own guilt in your heart, the wrongs that you have done, because we have a tendency to look horizontally, right? We look at the rest of the world, we look at other people. There's always somebody worse, and so we stand on a righteousness that is just a little bit better than someone else's. Or we spin it in such a way that, yeah, I'm bad at this, but this person is bad at this. And we give ourselves a false sense of righteousness. The psalmist, however, understands that our guilt compared to other people is virtually nothing. Compared to God, it should bring us... Great sorrow. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So we need to understand and establish that the righteous standard that we are called to live to is God's standard. It's not ours, it's the standard of the perfect, all knowing God of the universe who possesses all knowledge and sees all things. That is who every human being will have to answer to. Hebrews four, thirteen says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. We have to understand that God has created all things and knows all things, and you cannot slide anything past him. I promise you that every single human being in this room has a secret that they would not like exposed, has done something wrong that they would be ashamed of, that they would be guilty of, right? That, that we just... Do not. We keep it close to our chest. We don't want to be exposed, and it makes perfect sense. And it's really important that we understand, thanks to verse 4, that the purpose of that guilt is not to drive you into the ground. Okay, let's see how the psalmist responds. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So he sees, I'm toast. Before you, God, I cannot even stand. But then he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we understand that guilt is real. Guilt is a burden. It does press down on us. It brings us into lowliness. But why? What is the purpose of guilt? Restoration forgiveness. Until you see your guilt, you have no need of forgiveness. If you walked up to a hundred random people on the street today and said, I've got good news for you. You're forgiven. They would look at you like you were I don't really care. <laughs> that does, I didn't need to be forgiven, right? Forgiveness is worthless to the person that does not see that before God, they cannot stand. If God marks our iniquities, if he keeps a track record, we will not stand. John Owen is uh, a 17th century theologian, pastor, and he said, uh, he, was, he was a believing guy, you know, he actually preached, um, but then he came across this text one day, and it, uh, it really hit home, so to speak. He says, I myself preached Christ some years when I had but very little, if any, experimental acquaintance with access to God through Christ. Until the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave, under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness, but God graciously relieved my spirit through a powerful application of Psalm 130, verse 4, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou may be feared. There's a lowliness that happens when we recognize our guilt, and that lowliness makes forgiveness sweet. Forgiveness is not sweet. It is not joyful. It is not glorious to the person that stands in their own righteousness. So John Owen basically said, I had kind of believed this, right, and I had taught it, and I had talked about it, but I didn't really believe it in my heart of hearts. And it wasn't until God brought me low, that he afflicted me sorely, that I felt the darkness of my own soul, that I recognized what a joy it was to be forgiven. As Romans 2 puts it, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So the ultimate end of convicting guilt for the psalmist is forgiveness. It's not condemnation, it's not an unbearable weight, it's not a means of manipulation. It's a means of restoration. Okay, let's look at how the psalmist actually comes to God. It's almost as important um, what's not in the text as what is. So verse 1 starts out with, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So the depths in the Psalms and and elsewhere in Scripture is meant to be like this really dark place. Uh, It's almost, almost likened to the ocean, you know, just kind of, Chaotic, lifeless. I mean, when you think about the way that, that, that the bottom of the ocean exists, the environment there, it's, it's just cold. It's um, tons of pressure, right? There's darkness you can't see around you. And this is the, is the place that the psalmist is coming from, right? The depths of anguish, darkness, pain, agony. It's really important that we see that it is from that darkness that the psalmist cries out to God, right? When we go to God, here's what we do. (laughs) Let me do a few good deeds first. I'm I'm dark. My soul is riddled. I'm guilty. I have done wrong. I need a few things to cover me up before I go back to God because he's going to see me and I'm going to be exposed. But God will have none of that. He says, cry to me. In the depths of darkness, in the anguish of your soul, is when to cry out to God. He comes with nothing in his hand. He doesn't say, God, look what I've done. Accept me and love me. Jesus actually tells a parable about this uh, in Luke 18, uh, starting in verse 9. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have two men, right? Right? both sort of on their way to church, and one of them is a Pharisee, which is like the outward picture of total righteousness. I mean, if you can think about the epitome of moral living in our culture, it is this guy, right? He gives away his money. He fasts. Have you ever fasted? It's really hard to do. You have to be really devoted to fast. Um, He gives away his money. He fasts. He prays. Um, he is a devoted religious person and then the other guy is sort of the picture of quote unquote bad people for lack of a better term he's a tax collector and that time and place tax collectors were awful Um, they they were considered the bottom of the bottom who went home justified and why the tax collector why He understood the darkness of his own soul. The Pharisee was turned away because he said, Look at how good I am, God. Look at what I bring to you. No, the psalmist comes out of the depths to God with nothing in his hands, recognizing that it is grace alone, it is the mercy of God alone that grants us this forgiveness. This is why Jesus also said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, out of the depths, those are kind of some parallels there. The psalmist is in the depths of, of, of darkness. Uh, if we approach God with something in our hands, we will be turned away. Okay, the result of the remedy. So we saw the the anguish, the, the need for guilt, really, and then number two was uh, the remedy for guilt, which is the forgiveness of God. And then we see... Uh, And basically, verse 4b through 8, the result of the remedy. So what is the result of being forgiven by God? It's actually a rather interesting phrase, and it it, it might strike you, and and perhaps it did when Nathan read it. It says, but with you there is forgiveness, and then that you may be feared. It's kind of uh, an unusual thing, right? Does, Does forgiveness typically lead to fear in the sense that we think of it? No, and this actually came up in our city group a couple weeks ago and when Derek preached on, um, you know, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So in Scripture, it's, it's important for us to understand uh, that fearing God certainly in some measure thinks that, you know, just because of the fact that you are a creature that doesn't possess all power, you, you, you understand who God is. And perhaps there's even some, some aspect of you which is maybe afraid of God. But if, if we say that that's what it means, we're really missing the boat. Because all throughout Scripture, this, this phrase of fearing God uh, is there. And it's really what it means is to respect God, to have an awe for God, to understand who He is, to see Him rightly as we see ourselves rightly. Um, and so we see then the order in which we learn to worship God. So let's just... Pretend the phrase, uh, worshiping God, is synonymous with fearing God. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared or that you may be worshiped. So we see then that this, this fear cannot mean merely that I'm scared of God. It means that when I see the depth of my sin and I come to God and he forgives me, it does something in my heart that causes me to look on God and, in a more um, adamant way, or that sees him as more worthy of worship. See God's forgiveness in our lives leads to His lordship over our lives, because everybody here, Christian or non-Christian, is in some measure building their lives on something. Right, the the subconscious guilt that functions at a low level. Uh, leads us to do things to feel better about ourselves. And everybody, whether you affirm that Jesus has died in your place or not, is still struggling through that a little bit. Right? I, I, We all have fears. Right? I personally, one of mine is, is the fear of man. Right? Reputation. I want people to think that I'm amazing. Uh, why do I think that? If I actually had an understanding that, God, the one who sees all, who created the universe, who is infinitely good, looks down at me and forgives me and puts his stamp of approval on me because of his grace. If I understood that, I wouldn't care. Maybe in some measure, but I care a lot more than I should, right? Everybody does that. Everybody fears something. Everybody builds their lives on something, to the extent that we see God's forgiveness in our lives will, will be to the extent that we are freed from those and our lives are built more and more upon God and who he is. And one of the ways in which you've, you know if you've actually experienced God's forgiveness uh, is if now, in large measure, he's, he's the ultimate trajectory of your life. Uh, that is not to say in a perfect way, but but in a present way. something has happened, that your heart has changed directions, uh, that, that you long for Him, that your affections have changed. Um, so the forgiveness of God leads to the fear of God. We've got uh, verses five through eight here. Point three is, is that there is a collective waiting, that the psalmist talks about. Let me read 5 through 8, and we'll dive into that. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So what's the psalmist waiting on, right? We are guilty. God forgave us. We're not waiting for forgiveness anymore, right? That's already happened. But the psalmist understands that the Christian life is something of a paradox, right? If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have confessed your guilt to him and looked to him as your only hope, you are forgiven in an ultimate sense. But there is a tension that exists, right? We, we call it sometimes the, the already-not-yet reality. And that is, yes, I'm ultimately forgiven, but at the same time, I still do things wrong. And I'm still guilty on a daily basis, not in an ultimate judicial sense, but in the sense that I do things wrong and I continually need to go to God and repent over those. And so the psalmist basically is saying change is a long and slow and unfortunately arduous process. And those who have been forgiven are in the midst of that process. And you in your own strength cannot force that process. You cannot move it along in a profound way. You must wait for the Lord. You must look to God to do this. And you notice as well that there is a corporate calling Right? He, he's, he says, my soul waits, and then he turns and he says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. And so we see a communal aspect to growth, to, to understanding the forgiveness of God together. And that's why we're here. Right? That is the purpose of the church. It is a group of people that were guilty and saw their guilt, saw God's grace and forgiveness, and now wait on the Lord together encourage one another, point each other towards the forgiveness of God. So I encourage you, if you don't have close friendships, to try to forge them. I know that is not easy. It's hard. It can't be forced. But I would just say, be present. Wait on the Lord. Be available. And things will happen. Circumstances will take place that enable the grace of God to be more visible to your heart. Because on my own... I see a lot of things about God very clearly, right? I I have a a disposition, a predisposition, and an understanding of certain things that I can see pretty clearly. My wife has a different one, and you have a different one, and every single person in this room has a different perspective and different things that they struggle with and different things that they're good at, such is the beauty of pursuing God's forgiveness as a community. We can see it from different angles, David Pallison says it like this, the central dynamic of the Christian life is a from-to movement, from the old unforgiven self to the new forgiven self. Okay, last thing and we'll close. How is it that God is just simply able to come to us and say, you're forgiven? You know, how can the psalmist say, oh, I'm guilty, if I should stand before you, if you should mark iniquities, it's over. I might as well be obliterated. So how does God in verse 4 b say, 4a, but with you there is forgiveness? There is forgiveness. How? Okay, at the beginning of Psalm 130, we saw, I've said it several times, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Several thousand years after this psalm was written, the Son of God himself cried out of the depths out of the metaphorical depths on a literal cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is how God is able to forgive you, because he cut off his own son. He forsook him that we may be able to come in. So that as Jesus cried out and was not answered, so to say, by the Father, you and I now have an assurance that because Jesus did what we could never do and lived a perfect life and took a death that we deserve to die, that we too can cry out along the psalmist and say, out of the depths I cry, but with you there is forgiveness. Out of the depths and anguish of my soul I cry because Jesus himself cried out. He turned his back on him so you could love us. That's why we celebrate communion every week. We want to look to the one who condescended, the son of God who took on flesh, who became a man, who struggled, who suffered. And we want to remember that he willingly and joyfully broke his body or had it broken by guilty people. And he spilled his blood because guilty people crucified him. So there's bread back there. There's juice back there. We're going to do three more songs at any point that you would like to, feel free to go back. Remember his broken body in your place. Remember his spilled blood in your place. And lastly, there is an offering uh, box. If you care to give, don't feel compelled to, but uh, out, of, out of joy, we desire giving only. So uh, let me pray. We'll do three more songs, and then we'll wrap up. Lord, worthy are you? Unworthy are we. Guilty we are, and innocent you are. You're blameless, and we are unrighteous. And you took our place so that we know that we are not abandoned in the darkness of life that sometimes comes our way. We know that we can cry out, and that you will hear us and that our ultimate problem has been solved. That is, we can now stand because you forgive. We thank you for this reality, and I pray, Lord, that as a community, we would see it more clearly together, that this would not simply be something that is in one ear and out the other, or a a truth for our heads that doesn't migrate to our hearts, but rather that your forgiveness would be something sweet that we all taste corporately together, that we revel in, that we love, that we point each other toward, and that it shapes and molds and makes us uh, more and more like you. We Thank you so much for your grace, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.